Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Uh, and with me today is Phil Kreisman to discuss his upcoming book, Midwest Futures. What does the future hold for the Midwest? A vast stretch of fertile farmland bordering one of the largest concentrations of fresh water in the world. The Midwest U.S. seems ideally situated for the coming challenges of climate change, but it also sits at the epicenter of a massive economic collapse that many of its citizens are still struggling to overcome. The question of what the Midwest is and what it will become is nothing new. As Phil Kreisman writes in this idiosyncratic new book, ambiguity might be the region's defining characteristic. Taking a cue from Jefferson's Grid, the famous rectangular survey of the old Northwest Territory that turned everything from Ohio to Wisconsin into a square mile lot, Kreisman breaks his exploration of Midwest identity, past, and present into into six interconnected essays. The result is a sometimes sardonic, often uproarious, and consistently thought-provoking look at a misunderstood place and the people who call it home. Phil Kreisman is a former substitute teacher, shelter worker, and home health aide, and now works in the English department at University of Michigan. His work has appeared in a number of outlets, including the Hedgehog Review, Commonweal, the Christian Century, and the Outline. He holds an MFA from the University of South Carolina, Columbia, and he is the editor of the Michigan Review of Prisoner Creative Writing, a journal sponsored by the University of Michigan's Prison Creative Arts Project. So, Phil Kreisman, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Um, and uh, I should have said this before. It's it's Christman, uh, the first syllable. Oh, Christman. Oh, okay. Um, well, in any, yeah, sorry about that. But okay. in any case, um, yeah, could you maybe kind of introduce yourself a bit to listeners? I've read some of your writing, and it seems to kind of trace a few key themes. So what kind of are the things you find yourself drawn to writing about? I, I was I was hoping you would tell me because <laughs> I feel like I don't I, <laughs> I, I feel like one of my uh, one of my problems as a writer is that I, I, I don't always feel like I, I have like a single beat um, or, or a single well-developed area uh, of territory. But um, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I, I lived here for most of my life, uh, except for about five years in the South um, to do MFA school and, and get married. Um, and uh, I, while I do write, I write a lot about, I write a lot about books. I write a lot about religion. Um, I, uh, I write a lot about uh, post punk music. <laughs> um, uh, I end up, I end up writing a lot about uh, left politics and especially prison stuff. Um, and and I've ended up writing a lot about Midwest stuff in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think that's the most Christman answer you could have given. Um, one thing I've loved about your writing is I identify with you seem to be kind of unsure what you're writing about a lot of the time or trying to kind of figure out what you want to say, which I which I love. It comes across really well. But um, to get to this book, um, you started off by trying to find kind of a geographical beginning of the Midwest, only to find out, depending on how you're reading certain maps, that there are several possible starting points. So what exactly is this ambiguous starting point you're starting for? And how does this lack of a clear place to start with work as an introduction for thinking about the Midwest more broadly? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, um, and that ended up being one of the fun, the the most fun things, uh, some of the most fun that I had writing the book. Um, so when I, you know, I mean, I I thought a lot about like what should the structure be, um, how do how do I keep this from just being a shapeless shapeless mass, um, and when I hit you know when I hit hit on the idea of following the the Jeffersonian grid, um, which you you described the the format of the book a moment ago. Um, yeah, when I came up with that idea, I, I, of course did some reading up on, on that, that pro the grid and and the process, um, and, and the U S public land survey, which is what we're talking about here. And I found that of course the beginning point, I mean, you, you can, listeners can, can look this up on Wikipedia after they're done, but what's called the beginning point of the U.S. Public Lands Survey um, is 
shrouded in ambiguity. So there's, there's and and there's a a plaque uh, that you you can find uh, as as you're driving into. Um, oh shoot, east. Well, it must be. Um, West Liverpool or between East and West Liverpool, Ohio, I think, um, uh, there is, there's this plaque outside of town that says this commemorates the beginning point of the U S public land survey. You know, the, this great mapping effort of, of the late 18th and early 19th century in which, you know, everything was divided into these six by six, um, you know, square plats of land. And, uh, the, so the plaque by the side of the road, um, the little memorial, um, it says this memorializes the beginning point, but it, it also says that the actual beginning point is like several thousand feet over that way. And th- then you try to find out, uh, <laughs> where that actual space is like the actual beginning point and different sources say completely different things, uh, that it's it's underwater in it that it's uh, been paved over that it's on this land that belongs to a, a logistics company. Um, and like nobody seems completely sure. And then when I, uh, when I started reading up um, on the, you know, kind of period in 1785 when the first, you know, surveyor stakes were, were put down, I mean, that turned out to be, like the sources and things for that were, were ambiguous about who did what on what day, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it just seemed like a, a perfect, uh, kind of metonym for the way that, uh, you know, have you ever tried to talk about the Midwest with anybody that people will be like, well, I don't know. What even is the Midwest? Is that even a region? Is Montana the Midwest? Montana isn't the mes- Midwest. Is it, is Michigan the Midwest? Michigan's just the North. Like people, just uh just go into this kind of total um like denialism about whether they're whether the term names anything in particular so there just seems to be an ambiguity about what the midwest is um that that is replicated in a lot of the ways that that people talk about it not just geographically but culturally etc cetera, etc cetera. people just offer a lot of kind of anti-descriptions um, in, in a way that seems to me to be less true of, of regions like the, the West or the South. Um, and, and so that was, um, that was kind of why that uh, <clears throat> the anecdote about the, the marker for the beginning point um, just really struck me. Yeah, that was kind of a great way to introduce it. Um Speaking of kind of descriptions you use, one is kind of that kind of does emerge a lot is banal or boring. Um, This is often used to describe parts of the Midwest, but you flip this on its head um, and you write what flatness actually means is excess overwhelm by not hiding any of itself. A flat place exhausts your seeing. It gives us more information than we can take in. Dazed and bedazzled, we give up on it and call our failure boredom. Can you kind of unpack this contradictory situation here of an extremely complicated place getting kind of boiled down or kind of described as boring? Yeah, I um I mean my my first thought on that is is just that um Anytime people, anytime everyone agrees that something is boring, I, um, I don't know what this says about me, but I, I get curious about it. And I also start to get a little bit suspicious. Um, there, there's something almost, I, I get almost conspiracy minded. Like what, what are you trying to get me to overlook or ignore? Or what, what, what scent are you trying to throw me off of? by assuring me that this thing is, is super, super boring. And I also, I think to some degree, uh, boredom is, is a choice about how to see something. Um, it's, it's a choice to see vacuity instead of, um, instead of seeing or, 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 
describing uh, what's there. And I mean, definitely like I've used that language to describe, you know, parts of the Midwest before, or, or even the place where I, where I grew up. But when I really, really look at my own memories of that place, um, I was, I was, you know, a depressed teenager often, or I, you know, sad cause, uh, you know, no, no girl wanted to make out with me or whatever, but I wasn't, I wasn't that bored that often. Uh, the, what, what I remember is, is more like a, a pervasive sense of like a, a very strange and weird and enchanted world. And, and that's not because, uh, of, of anything particularly special about the place you know, the part of the Midwest where I grew up, central Michigan, it's, it's just simply because it is a place, um, <laughs> you know, history is interesting. People are interesting. Flora and fauna are interesting. Rivers and streams are interesting. They're interesting in one way, if they're, uh, relatively pristine and, and full of life. And they're interesting in another way, if they're full of, uh, you know, uh, pollution and like cancerous, flame retardant which is like the river near where i grew up like that's just a, that sucks but it's interesting you know so i i just i even though i experience boredom as often as anybody else does i think it's uh i think that's a thread to be pulled on um rather than uh you know a reason to accept kind of epistemological defeat yeah um so you write that in our cultural mythology, the Midwest has functioned as a sort of financial fund rather than a place. And you sum this up really well, writing a place has a history, a fund does not. So what does thinking of the Midwest as a fund change regarding how we think about it? Yeah, um, that fund language, by the way, comes directly from from my sources. Um like regarding the first question. So when I, when I looked into the, this is, this is worth knowing it's, it's not, it's not just a a thing that I, I I made up. Um, When I was reading about the surveying teams that were out kind of like placing, you know, the, the beginning, the stake that is the beginning point in the, in the U S public land survey, um, a couple a couple days after that happens they cross paths with another surveying team that's going i f- i forget where uh to do i forget what uh it's it's been several months since i wrote the book um but one of the the captain leading the other team has has left uh you know left us his journal and he writes these guys who are doing the beginning of the public land survey they they're doing really important work because um, I'm paraphrasing, but because this, this Northwest territory that they're beginning, that they're surveying will no doubt become a very important fund for this new country. Like fund is literally the word he uses to describe what later became Ohio. And I thought that that's really just mask off, just really laying it out. how um early uh early americans thought of um early non-native americans thought of that whole area it was a place it was it was the western reach of the united states um and it was a place that a lot of them had bought or inherited um or somehow come into, you know, land claims for, and, and often those land claims were disputed. Um, and that was a big issue in the, in the, um, period running up to, you know, in the, in the, um, revolutionary period, um, the, you know, Maryland says it has this strip of land and, uh, Pennsylvania says it has the same strip of land. And how do you adjudicate all of that? Um, and uh yeah I, people people really were uh, the the early you know the colonists uh who became uh the the people that we call the the founding fathers with i i think a little too much <laughs> pseudo religious reverence 
uh, we're really looking at that at, at those land claims as as like a future huge source of income and as this gold mine that they're all sitting on top of and and they're not very subtle about saying that um in the in the writing from that time period um and i think once i I don't know. Once I once I started thinking of that part of the country this way, you you could start to see all, all these other ways that um, the discourse about the the part of the country that later became known as the Midwest uh, just went on functioning as um, a source of of raw money making potential that benefited people further uh further to the east of the country um that 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 way of seeing uh as as just a big kind of um and this ties back into the boring thing a big undifferentiated um not all of that cool of a place on its own but potentially a big source of money to people who live you know close to actual civilization um that way of seeing it I, I, I think never fully went away. Yeah. It kind of continues into today in a lot of ways, which we'll get to Um, the way the Midwest uh, developed is often imagined as kind of a series of small isolated towns of kind of frontiersmen building outposts that slowly developed into cities, but you kind of unpack this alternate history of the Midwest that is much more development of uh, capitalist expansion and profit seeking. Um, how did, how does this way of thinking or, or what, what exactly is this alternative history you're trying to get at? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that was uh, the, the picture you describe is very much the mental picture that I had always had as well. Um, and once I started doing the research, uh, it just it, that turns out to not not really be the case. Um, and a couple of sources that are really helpful on this, um, or one the the book Nature's Metropolis by William Cronin, which is just it's a a great book. Um, it's it's unusually readable for a work of history. And he um, this is a quote that I saw a couple of couple of different places um, in in my research uh but he quotes this speculator from the 1840s saying or 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 maybe it's a later commentator writing on that period uh, writing about that period of speculation but a 19th century writer saying that uh if, if basically the um the entire <laughs> the entirety of of that part of the country was covered with quote uh suppositious towns and villages in other words um people were were so often buying like uh buying these plats of land uh, you know in big lots with towns and villages already in mind like you know um this this will be this will be the big town and and this is this is where we'll do all the all the processing of raw materials and these little villages which kind of cluster around it i mean there there was there was central planning on the part of uh of the people or or um you know trusts or corporations or whatever that would that would buy the land that would become these towns um and i i just hadn't really thought about it uh, that way before. And then another source that's really good on this, um, although it's, it's quite, it's a geographer's writing for other geography scholars and, and it's quite jargony. And I'm, I'm sure there are ways in which I failed to understand the argument, but, uh, Brian Page and Richard Walker's, uh, article, uh, from, from settlement to Fordism. Um, and they are explicitly critical of, of the idea that it's, you know, isolated settlers first and towns later and later and then cities after that, they, they make the argument that it's, you know, it, it's very much about like, um, central kind of central planning on the part of, uh, you know, the, the people who can actually pool their money together enough to actually 
buy a bunch of plats of land and and make this stuff happen. Yeah. So one of the, in my opinion, one of the funnier parts of the book is when you look at the inverse of capital expansion and you look at how some towns actually sprung up as a result of various sorts of political and religious idealisms. Uh, This history sort of surprise me a bit. And I think it's for reasons you describe in the book that the Midwest has an almost anti-utopian impulse, the desire to be nowhere of significance. So could you kind of unpack this impulse and what's the history it almost seems to be attempting to suppress? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I think of the Midwest as wanting to be someplace no nowhere of significance so much as just i mean we midwesterners often do see ourselves do see ourselves that way um it's maybe we want to see ourselves that way in the sense that any habitual way of thinking about something becomes like like a desire i mean the desire to maintain that habit but i mean we we um my my wife noticed it when we first moved here because she's a southerner and if you ask a southerner who's from a tiny town you know where are you from they just start talking about it like they're william faulkner and this town that they're from is the setting of the new william faulkner novel <laughs> uh, they just they treat it with you know they treat it with the dignity it deserves oh yes my grand uh it was it was i come from you know Codswallop, Arizona. And I, I don't know I'm, if I, if I try to describe it, I'm going to sound like I'm making fun of Southerners, but I mean, you know, the verbal habit. I mean, if you, if you've had conversations, they, they love to tell stories. Yeah. They love to tell stories and they love to storify the places where, where they live. And like, that's, I actually think that that's normal and, and healthy. Um, you should feel about your own family, like, uh, and, and your own place, like, you know, uh, hobbits feel about Hobbiton, you know, um, <laughs> ever that's, that's part of seeing your own place in history as, as having, you know, dignity, uh, is that every, every place is a potential, you know, 3000 page long saga. Um, but Midwesterners in, in my experience often don't, see that if don't see themselves that way if you ask me where i'm from i my first first thing i say is you haven't heard of it which like you know a southerner doesn't give a shit if you've heard of their town or not they don't they don't start by downplaying it like that uh but that oh it's it's you've never heard of it it's uh, it's about 15 minutes from Mount Pleasant. Oh, you've never heard of Mount Pleasant. It's about, uh, it's, it's about an hour, hour and a half from Lansing. It's, it's like 90 minutes from Grand Rapids, you know, uh, like I try to situate it in terms of, of one of the cities that I think you might have heard of basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a lot of people around there, around here do that. Um, for a while, my, my wife thought that was just a weird thing I did. And then she noticed, that uh, our students at U of M uh, tend to do this as well. Um, and so we see ourselves as, as quite boring. And yeah, one of the things that you find out if you, if you dig in to the, to the history at all is that the, this, this place was just, you know, crawling with you with like attempted utopias in the 19th century you know, you, you just, you move and you, you stumble over another utopia. You like stub your toe on a utopia. There's, um, that you can, um, there's a list somewhere on Wikipedia. I'm trying to remember the, the official title, but it's like, um, utopian communities and communes in America in the 19th century. And, Midwest, the Midwest accounts for like a, a large, large number of them. Um, Amana, Iowa is one of the more famous ones because um, over time, the um, religious community that uh, started it um, became known for uh, the good appliances they make and, and they are still an appliance company today. Um, like they make, I think like dishwasher, dishwashers and shit. Um, (laughs) 
and uh, the one that y- probably is most fun to read about because of of the people who have chosen to to write about it is uh, New Harmony, Indiana, um, which was the site of two utopias in a row. Um, so to to kind of tie it back to the last question, um, you know, if you're if you're selling off land in a part of the country, uh, almost like by the square. Um, that attracts, of course, land speculators, rich guys. It also, but but also like uh, a church or a religious group can pool their money together and say, we would like to buy a couple squares of land, please. And, and that happened to this um, place in Indiana um, when the, the followers of a German, uh, German commune, the, the Rappites, uh, you know, they were, they were experiencing, uh, uh, pressure at home, uh, persecution. And so they, they, um, moved to Pennsylvania and then they decided for, for reasons that are really opaque, uh, to anyone who is not George Rapp, the, the founder of this community. He's one of these people who did the thing where you, you develop, uh, really like private and um, what's what's the word? Emily? Idiosyncratic re- readings of the Bible, and then you do exactly what those say because it's it's the Bible. Um, and uh, so he he decided, no, um, we need to we need to go to Indiana, and and they they bought themselves some plots and they started this town and. The part of the story that I was actually surprised by is that it was a, actually a very, it was a financially successful town to the point where um, rival towns nearby, uh, you know, came to to hate and resent it because the, like they were doing better financially. Uh, it had a healthier economy um, than, than its neighbors. And then, um, and so the reason that the Rapite community didn't work out there is that uh that there wasn't a reason uh it's just that george rapp was reading the bible uh um one day and he uh thought that the bible was telling him okay now you now you've got to go back to pennsylvania again uh because reasons and so they left and they needed uh they needed to sell their town to um you know, so they could afford to buy a new town somewhere else. Uh, and they, um, they sold it <laughs> to, uh, an English guy who wanted to start his own very different kind of managerial, uh, you know, almost panopticon, uh, you, you know, uh, op, uh, utopia where everyone, everyone's labor, laboring capacity was kind of, um, optimized uh so you know different different ideas of of communism right uh there's like religious communism and there's doing uh doing communal living because by gosh it's efficient (laughs) uh and and so this new harmony indiana was the site of two successive attempts at building a utopia which i just think is really funny yeah, there's kind of like a lot of weird uh, little tidbits hidden in this book. Um, so when talking about the development of the Midwest or anywhere, there is often this sense of inevitability where progress happens due to largely anonymous forces. In addition to the various towns that sprung up, you use the example of the development of the train system to say that the Midwest wasn't inevitable. It was a decision. and maybe we could go so far as to say it's a sort of commodity or a product. Um, how does the development of train lines or towns kind of give you this history of the Midwest more as something that was decided upon? Yeah. Uh, so my big source there is uh, Richard White's excellent book, Railroaded, which which came out a, f- a few years ago. Um, and basically what what white is pushing back against in his book is the view that um pretty pretty much any time I, I don't know if you've noticed this but any time uh 
there's a long and rapacious history um, attached to any particular industry. We have this tendency to look back from late in that history and say, well, you know, uh, the railroad companies or the utility companies or, you know, uh, the, the, the oil companies, who, whoever it is that we're looking back on, we kind of want to say after the fact, you know, they, they, uh, they weren't very kind in their methods and, and they, they broke a lot of, they moved fast and broke things to use the Silicon Valley language, but, but you know, they had to do it. Uh, and because, uh, this development had to happen and it had to happen this way. And, you know, that's just the way it is. Capitalism is, isn't always tasteful. And, uh, he, he, white makes a number of, of very specific argument, um, observations, which I quote in the book about how, like, yeah, okay, here's how that lets us entertain that railroads themselves in some form were inevitable, the good way to do it would have been, um, you know, and, and then he lists a number of things that options that could have been pursued that would have been more long-term profitable, um, and, and less environmentally messy and, and would have required fewer, uh, you know, bailouts. Um, the railroad companies were, were constantly, uh, requiring bailouts, um, from the government. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, when you, it, it when you look back, when you look back at the history of capitalism, it is, we think it's, we assume that it's unfolding according to a kind of like amoral, but, uh, so like it, it's, it's amoral spreadsheet logic. Like it's, it's unkind, but it's efficient. It's often unkind and inefficient. Um, and that's very much the case that white makes about the railroads. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think this kind of goes into something I, I think you also wanted to ask, ask about, but, um, one of the, <clears throat> one of the ways in which this is true is that, um, the development of the railroads led to <clears throat> a, a lot of bison death, <laughs> Uh, and that, that, was, that was not, that was not good for the country. It was not, it was not something that anybody smart would have, would have sat down and said, this is definitely the optimal outcome for everybody here. Um, you know, at the time it, um, the death of, you know, uh, large numbers of bison was seen as a good thing by like some elements within um, the corporate and government and military worlds, because uh, basically it, it, bison were an important food source for native Americans. And uh, if the bison are dying, then that makes it easier to push the native Americans around. And that means uh, that it's that that it's easier. I mean, I'm to do what, I don't know, but, um, it, it gives this sort of white power structure, the feeling of having the upper hand, which I think that feeling is probably as much the motivation as any, any specific project. Um, and, and at one point there's a famous quote from a, <clears throat> Uh, from a military officer of some kind saying, you know, just keep shooting the bison boys. Every bison dead is an America is, is an Indian starved or something like that. And it's, it's, that's horrible. That's, that's not even, that's not even like being a smart soulless capitalist. I don't know what that is. It's just barbaric. Um, and that's the, that, combination of like barbarism waste inefficiency and and kind of raw will to power is what i kept turning up when i when i tried to look into the actual history of how all this stuff developed yeah so you're kind of drawing a lot of different connections here and kind of finding this underlying logic to it um 
But what's interesting is that in spite of the various kind of historical processes we've been discussing, uh, Midwesterners still often feel that they live with a sort of exemption from history. Um, Where does this vague kind of sense of historical exemptedness come from exactly, um, if not from our history of development? Like where... Why do Midwesterners, in spite of this yeah. very wild history, kind of get this sense that it just sort of happened? Yeah, I mean, that's a the the myth that Midwesterners are normal is something that seems to kind of emerge in the early twentieth century. Um, so, a, a writer named James Shortridge in in a book called The Middle West in in nineteen eighty nine. Um, he traced the origin of the or the history of the term middle west and and midwest which is like the shorter version and um he found that it, people start using the term in print a lot at uh right around the time that capitalist as 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 he argues uh if i'm remembering correctly basically capitalist development is reaching a point where there's a a definite split between city and country uh like you know urbanization is 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 becoming a a a trend that's that's hard to ignore um and the, the midwest becomes this popular um a popular term middle west becomes a popular term right at the moment when we kind of need a uh, nostalgic history for the country to kind of look back on. Uh, we, we, we need to, we need to feel like, uh, there's kind of a, an American Gothic, uh, (laughs) couple or, um, you know, family, uh, back on the prairie that we can remember and feel a, a kind of warm glow about when we're in, in New York making our fortune. Um, like that's just an emotional need people have and, and that it, it, it's back projected, um, because urbanization and development are, are creating that emotional need. We, we then, uh, we then need to imagine this, uh, kind of quiet, safe, rural normalcy. Um, and yeah, so so it's it's a myth. It's it's a myth that um, is convenient for different groups of people for different reasons. Uh, but I, I don't I don't see a lot of evidence that Midwestern life was ever you know any any less crazy uh, than any other any other the life of any other region. It's historical through yeah. and through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the most interesting things you address is the Midwest's complicated relationship to race. Um, if I can quote you at length for a, a short couple sentences, um, you write, well, Southern history yields story after story of the most savage, intimate, racist violence. Midwestern history is a study of racial quarantine enforced by banks, real estate sales, neighborhood covenants, city councils, and police. And though the region has seen its share of clan activity and outright lynchings, Midwestern racism most frequently appears in the history books in the form of riots. A riot is, among other things, a refusal to be quarantined. We like to tell a story in which white flight responds to late 60s uprisings, choice that makes such flight seem at least rational. But the riots themselves arose from an already ongoing abuse, end quote. So you've got this kind of really interesting parallel of a very complicated and kind of almost a certain sort of violent history in the Midwest, but then it gets translated into riots that kind of emerge out of nowhere in white flight that's kind of a rational response to these uh, supposedly spontaneous events. Can you kind of unpack a bit about both this complicated history and how it gets translated in historical memory? Yeah. So here, um, you know, if, if for Midwesterners in general, um, the pattern is, uh, 
our our history is is violent and is interesting and we uh lay this myth of like we're just boring every people uh on top of that i think kind of the parallel pattern that happens with the history of midwestern uh racism is that you know it's it's an american i mean the history of the midwest is is a very American history in that it's full of a, it's, it's a dialectic of inclusion and violent exclusion. Um, just like the country at, at large, uh, although the mechanisms are different and what we, the myth that we kind of overlay on top of that is to just kind of make jokes. Oh, the Midwest is so white. We're so white. Oh, it's, we're so lame. Oh, how silly of us. We're so white. Um, which like, gosh, if that, if only that were the whole problem, like I I've actually, I've had people say to me more than once who are uh, white Midwesterners who grew up here as I did. Um, I've heard more than once. Uh, and, and I myself believed this for a long time, uh, that if, if you grew up in a non-diverse Midwestern town or small city, it's non-diverse just because, you know, this doesn't happen to be the place where black people decided to live. Uh, there isn't any larger history causing, um, the, that exclusion. It's just, it's just kind of happenstance. And I've even heard people, white people in the Midwest say, you know, we're, we're not racist here because, you know, just black people just weren't that much of a thing for me growing up. So it never, there weren't any around, so it never occurred to me to be racist against them. So it's it's in the South that people are racist, and that's just uh, that's just completely wrong, unfortunately. Um, the um, one book that was really interesting and, and revealing for me, um, although I don't I don't use it a lot in the book, is Herb Boyd's uh, Black Detroit, where he talks about. Um, just how long there have been black people in the city of Detroit. Um, Tia Miles's book, the the dawn of Detroit or the birth of the Tr- of Detroit. I don't have it right in front of me right now. Um, makes a similar point. She she talks about how um, because Detroit was originally uh, colonized uh, and founded by the French, uh, there were black slaves uh, owned by French people living there and even though when the constitution was ratified uh and the, and then the um or actually before the constitution was ratified when the um uh the northwest territories act um in 1785 the the law that kind of like um decided the legal status of the northwest ter- of the old northwest territory which is is the area that became the midwest um when that law was passed uh slavery was banned but the handful of enslaved black people who lived in in Detroit were kind of like their slavery status was kind of grandfathered in at the time. So there were actually was, although on a very small scale, there was slavery in the Midwest, uh, in in Detroit, uh, at the, at the at the very dawn of of American history. So it's it's always been there, and if you read books like *The Origins of the Urban Crisis* by Thomas Segrew, um, you know it talks about the long history of neighborhood covenants and redlining, and uh, you know black family tries to move into the all white neighborhood, and their um, you know windows get mysteriously broken um, because people are are unnecessarily panicked about their property values and just. All, all the typical, like, let me be frank, like wimpy, stupid, childish, baby ass shit that nervous white people uh, have been doing for a long time uh, in the United States. It's, it's all been happening here um, the whole time. Uh, if, 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 if there are no black people or if there are, you know, um, like three or four black people that I can remember in the town where I grew up that the reason for that is probably something a lot less innocent than just they thought the town was as boring as I did and opted not to live there, you know, which was, which was my sort of informal theory (laughs) as a kid as to why there were no black people. Uh, no, it's, uh, 
it's the same reasons as as anywhere else that uh, you have a small town with no black people in it. Right. So kind of developing this a bit into more recent uh, events, you write about the 2016 election and how Trump won the Midwest by playing to or making an appeal to the normalcy of the Midwest. Um, And you write that this normalcy kind of has, in the last several decades, become kind of a fetishized performance um, uh, in this larger kind of political dynamic we have. Like I think of the Iowa caucus happening as kind of this, uh, like it, 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 it doesn't equate to many actual votes, but it is very symbolically important. So can you kind of unpack uh, the Midwest role in the larger dynamic of American electoral politics, like at least at the symbolic level? Yeah, I mean, I think the 2020 primary so far has, you know, I, I wish I'd written the book a little bit later or had a time machine because it's it's furnished some really perfect examples. Um, you know, I, I can't remember the details off the top of my head, but I, a number of times in just like the intra democratic party debates, there's, um, people have kind of tried to use the Midwest as a reason why voters at large cannot have nice things. Um, Pete Buttigieg has, has appealed to, you know, back where I come from, we, we, uh, we don't care about these radical proposals like Medicare for all. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I, I live in the Midwest and I very much would like everybody to, to have free healthcare. I, I think that sounds great. Um, and if you want to talk about Midwestern values, um, how come that, how come that always gets trotted out uh, to mean things like isolationism or ignoring the environment because we don't want to piss off the car companies, um, which is, is how uh, Demo- Democrats from Michigan have have you know often used the concept, you know, or or being kind of racist, kind of transphobic. Now, why does it always mean that? Why does it never mean like? Uh, why does Midwestern values never mean moving to Kansas specifically to like fight the segregationists or or to or to um to fight the like the pro Confederacy people to fight the the racists? You know, why does it never mean uh <clears throat> like all of the many extremely progressive movements? that have originated in Midwestern cities? Why does it never mean uh, the tendency of like the twin cities to take in large numbers of refugees? You know, why does, why does it never mean Rashida Tlaib, right? Or Ilan Omar? Those, those like as a Midwesterner, I very much want to claim both of those women as, as, you know, being part of something that I want to identify with. And I'm just as Midwestern as anybody else. And so are they. Right. So uh, one of the more interesting passages uh, you have in the book is you write that on election night, um, you had this rather strange impulse in response to seeing Trump win, uh, and your wife had to talk you out of it. But you saw your response to the election as being indicative of a larger Midwestern ideology at play. So first of all, what was your response to the election? What did you want to do? And what does it tell you about broader currents in Midwest ideology? Yeah, I mean, I still go back and forth about how much this was um, being an American and how much this was uh, being male. But my first response to seeing that Trump had been elected was to like actually want to like jump in the river and drown. Uh, like I wanted to not be on this planet anymore. But my second response which was about equally crazy and, and out of character was, uh, okay, gotta, I've, I've got to pack up the house and, and we're going to, I'm going to learn how to shoot. I'm going to learn how to, <laughs> I'm going to learn how to homestead. And we're, we're just going to go off grid and, and become independent so that I can protect my household, uh, from the crazy people who are taking over and, you know, all the, uh, all the little like, LARPing Nazis that love Trump, um, of, of which there are unfortunately, you know, not a few here in Michigan. 
Um, and th- this was stupid. And, you know, my wife owned me really hard about it uh, in, in a gentle way. She was like, you, you, you really think that's, that's going to work? Uh, you really think uh, going out of the cities is a, is a good idea? Do you, do you really think that I want to share the house with a, with a gun? Because uh, I don't. And, you know, um, right. She talked me out of it pretty easily. But um, I, you know, I just like I thought about the fact that I'd had this response even momentarily because it was just so irrational and and made so little sense. And uh, but it did make sense in terms of like. uh, It made sense in terms of settler colonialism, it made sense in terms of like the most the idea that the most like protective manly um and and like following your duty kind of thing that you can do as a person is to um is to just find your like little square of property and and just lock it down and protect it and make it self-sufficient and independent and uh and and play security officer over the whole thing um which you know, makes sense if you if you think about this this country as you know f- full of people who who were sold stolen land on on basically that um, that offer like um, you know buy a square of the stolen land and <clears throat> and and be. Uh, be that you know manly independent sturdy yeoman farmer um and so yeah that's you know if you you think about a lot of people in wisconsin and michigan uh and ohio um being able to trace their family history back to people who did that and to like kind of celebrations of that in, in, in the cultural mythology, uh, you know, little house on the, on the prairie is like the kid's version of that, that story. Um, you know, that helps me understand why this like weird idea even was something that I could even formulate in a, in a moment of emotional distress. Yeah. I connected a lot to that passage cause I had some of those, impulses growing up uh kind of this very like you know impulse towards like this more masculine guy living off the grid um but moving on uh towards the end you start talking more in depth about climate change uh so with climate change ramping up the midwest presents a number of questions because of its ambivalence since it's likely to be one of the more prosperous regions while also having certain limitations so what are some of the advantages for the Midwest, geographically speaking, that it will need to harness to kind of endure through this kind of upcoming radically changed climate? Yeah. So if, if, I, were a, if I were the type of capitalist who fancied himself uh, an intellectual, right, if I were an, an Elon Musk type, you know, money man, cum uh, pseudo philosoph. Uh, I would be very interested in the great lakes for starters. Uh, I mean, that is one of the world's largest concentrations of freshwater. Uh, <laughs> so there's that, you know, there's, uh, the, the more inland parts of the Midwest, uh, are, are relatively, um, like they're, they're less likely to have earthquakes. Um, you know, they're less vulnerable to kind of coastal inundation. Um, <clears throat> and so I think, uh, I mean, I think that it, obviously that's a great blessing. Uh, all those things are, are, are a great blessing, but it, it also presents, um, you know, a, a danger um, because when large wannabe absentee landlords start eyeing your resources, I mean, you just, you better be careful. <laughs> you gotta watch out. Um, we, you know, we've gotta we've gotta think about what Nestle wants to do with our water, um, and and how much democrat, how truly democratic the process leading to um, Nestle making a big play for Great Lakes water has been, um, and and you know what 
where that's going to put us in a few centuries from now uh, and whether that's the best stewarding of our resources, you know, just to, to name one uh, kind of obvious example. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think, yeah, when, when the people responsible for large pools of money are, are kind of looking excitedly at your resources, uh, that can, that can have really negative impact on actual quality of life in that place. Um, and I think we've got to think about safeguarding, like the health of the people who actually live here. Um, whoever that ends up being, uh, you know, ahead of the, the health of somebody's bottom line. Right. So in ending the book, one of the things you bring forward is the idea of other selves, other versions of you and other people you could have been, some of whom might've not gone off to college, might've not kind of expanded their horizons in the way, and maybe wouldn't have made it as far as you have. So what does this idea of alternative possibilities tell you about yourself and what it means to be a Midwesterner? Like, what is this kind of ambivalence that's central to our identity? Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I, um, I mean, I, I think I think about that topic partly just because I, I grew up working class and I feel like it's, it's a series of really lucky accidents that, that have, have prevented me from, um, you know, being, uh, like another opioid casualty. Right. I mean, um, I've, I've met people who I think are just as good people as, as I am or, or better people in, in some ways, uh, who like that's their life. Um, and so that's, I mean, I think it's partly just <laughs> survivor's guilt maybe, but, um, but I also feel like there's, there's something about growing up in a place that is presented as like almost stultifyingly normal that makes you really hyper-conscious of all the parts of yourself that don't, uh, that don't fit that description. Um, and I think that split feeling then just kind of encourages you to dwell on all of the different versions of you that it's possible for there to have been. Um, and, and that is something that I, I think about a lot. And, you know, I, I also, I hear it from other people and I'm, I'm sure this it's not like, I think this is a totally uniquely Midwestern thing. I just think the Midwest can be kind of conducive to it. Um, you know, I, I meet the kind of people who have that, that weird melancholy where you, you drive, you drive through a city you've never been or a town you've never been. And you think, what if, what if I'd lived here? What if I'd lived right there? You know, that place that I'm passing right now. What if I were that person who's like, you know, kind of sitting on that porch, um, like that, that kind of like almost weird, like German romantic self-doubling, um, I don't know. Um, every, everybody, uh, has weird reveries, but I think there's something about growing up here that conduces to like that particular type of weird reverie. Right. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that, that's something that I, I, I think a lot, a lot about, and I guess I feel like there's, um, you know, when you have a weird neurosis, uh, you can either try to resist it or you can try to find some sort of healthy possibility in it. And since I happen to have that one, I think, uh, that using that, uh, to try to generate a sense of solidarity for other people and a sense of like, um, you know, the, the, the person, uh, the person I know who has lost every one of her sons to opioids. Each of those is a possible version of me, you know, each that, that person is someone I could have been in some sense, like to kind of multiply that sense of, of how things could have turned out for you until, un, until it expands your ability to notice what other people are, are going through and, and to care about it. Yeah, that's a heavy way, but very thoughtful way to end, I think. So 
Uh, final question: What, if anything, are you working on now? Um, <laughs> right now I'm I'm working I'm working on clearing out a space in my calendar where I can just sleep for a month. <laughs> I um, right, you know, after I after I finished this book, we had some health emergencies on both sides of our family, and then um, I had uh, I've being reappointed at my job. And I just feel like I, I need to take a nap for six months, but I am also starting a, a column for plow quarterly. If you know that publication, um, they're going to let me do a new books column, uh, kind of similar to the, the, the Harper's new books where it's like, I, I take a couple of books that I wanted to, that that are recent that I wanted to talk about, and I try to find weird oblique connections between them. Uh, that's a forum I've always wanted to write in, uh, and they're letting me do it, so that's pretty sweet. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm doing various like little essays for for different places. I'm working on uh, an essay for Hedgehog Review on the concept of uh, middlebrow uh, middlebrow culture. Um, what work that concept does um so it's just yeah little little bits and pieces here and there okay well phil christman thank you so much for being with us yeah thank you steven